When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ever wonder what psychologists talk about over coffee? I'm Debbie Sorensen, a clinical psychologist in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, where I specialize in rehab and health psychology and acceptance and commitment therapy. And I'm Diana Hill, a clinical psychologist in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California, where I specialize in mindfulness and values-based approaches to therapy. In this podcast, we bring psychology research into practice by discussing topics from psychology with experts in the field and with each other. You'll get a glimpse into the books we read, the research we think is interesting, and the ideas from psychology that we use to thrive in our own lives. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Hi, Debbie. It's good to talk with you again after meeting up with you just a couple weeks ago. Yeah, it's great to to talk to you too, Diana. It was really fun to see you in person. Yeah, so Debbie and I met up for a yoga class in Boulder, Colorado, and we were planning on a picnic, but we got thunderstormed out, so we ended up at the Whole Foods overlooking the Flatiron Mountains in Boulder, um, which was pretty fantastic. And we got a chance to talk more about the podcast and maybe some just a few ch- tweaks and changes we're going to be making in today's episode and upcoming episodes. Yeah, we're going to keep talking about psychology topics with ourselves and have some some sort of featured guests who talk about their areas of specialty. Um, but we're going to kind of ground it a little bit more by starting every episode ourselves um, and just kind of talking about what we're into, what we're interested in, and psychology um, to get us started. And sometimes it'll just be the two of us, but sometimes it might be other people, but we're always going to kind of start it out that way. Yeah. So we have some great interviews lined up in the next uh, few episodes in the future. And today we're going to be talking with Yael Shanbren again. So we were had the pleasure to talk with her a few episodes back about working parents and um, some of the struggles and um, enrichments of being a, a working parent. And today we hope to t- expand a little bit more to talk more about relationships. So I'm going to be talking to Yael about her specialty in integrative behavioral couples therapy. And then we're also going to talk a bit about broken bonds bonds in romantic relationships, what happens when there's an affair or lying or substance use that goes on. Dr. Yael Shambran is a clinical psychologist in private practice and an assistant professor at Brown University. She's a mother of three boys, and she also blogs for Psychology Today, and you can find a lot of information about her um, and her upcoming book on straddling um, professional engaged family life at yaelshambran.com. So that's Y-A-E-L. S-C-H-O-N-B-R-U-N.com. And really look forward to um, sharing my conversation with you all with you today. Can't wait to listen. Thanks, Diana. Thanks. Welcome, Yael. It's super great to see you again today. Thanks for having me, Diana. Yeah, thanks for coming back to talk about relationships. And hopefully we can get a chance to chat about um, integrated behavioral couples therapy, how that research and that type of therapy informs practice, 
and some of the minor things that people come in for therapy as well as some of the big things that people come in for like affairs or big infractions in relationships. Yep, there's so much to cover when it comes to couples therapy. Yeah. So early in your research career as a graduate student, you went in to really specialize in couples. And I'm wondering, I'm so curious about you now, um, uh, you know, as a married, uh, in a committed relationship, and also working with couples, how your perspective has changed over time um, from your early days in research to, to where you're at now in your practice. Yeah, I, I think that it's it's such an interesting thing to have started out in the relationship that I'm now committed to as a graduate student studying relationships and learning about what predicts good, healthy, long-lasting relationships and what predicts sort of the relationships that don't go well. And I definitely think that my perspective has changed a lot just in terms of understanding really how hard relationships are from a very personal standpoint, um, you know, I'm lucky enough to be in a good, relatively healthy, functional relationship. And yet pretty much on a daily basis, I experience challenges, whether it's getting caught up in my own personal narrative or frustrations or getting caught up in emotions and, um, you know, finding myself falling into common behavioral patterns that I see all the time in the therapy room, you know, even with a lot of expertise in how to help couples do better, it feels nearly impossible not to fall into some of those behavioral traps myself. And so, um, you know, it just helps me to experience a lot more compassion for the couples that I see when I am myself experiencing, you know, challenges all the time in my own relationship. What are some of the behavioral traps that you see that sort of unwind couples? Yeah. So, I am a mother with young kids and um, and my husband is a father with young kids and we, you know, are often tired and stressed out. And one of the um, common things that happens is people, when they're stressed out, feel like they need support and we get caught up in a narrative of, you know, wishing that our partner would be more supportive and then falling into behavioral traps like accusing or blaming our partner for not being there and supporting us sufficiently so that we were having an easier time. And, you know, as, as a parent with young kids, I think that one is just really common and nearly impossible not to get caught up in. And what's so useful about my training and my practice is that I'm able to say, oh, like there, I'm doing that thing that all parents with young children do. It doesn't make it not happen, but it does help to give me some perspective and certainly helps to give me a lot of compassion for myself and my partner as we're going through it. So and maybe we can talk a little bit about behavioral therapy and how how behavior the type of therapy that you do would address some of these issues that show up between couples. Yeah, so I practice a treatment called Integrative Behavioral Couples Therapy, and you talked a little bit about this in one of your previous podcasts, and we had talked about maybe going into a little bit more detail about that. Um, but Integrative Behavioral Couples Therapy integrates um, change approaches to uh, teaching couples to do things differently with acceptance approaches. Um, and the idea there is that, you know, there's, there's some things that are not possible to change. And also that when we come in expecting change from our partners, that we're sometimes met with frustration because our partner may dig their heels in or may not otherwise be able to make changes in the ways that we want. 
kind of similar to what I was just mentioning too, you know, there, there are certain circumstances where, uh, for example, a parent with young kids may want more support and it's really hard for the other parent to meet them with that kind of support because they're also taxed to such a high level. Um, but integrative behavioral couples therapy is sort of built on this premise that there are some things that are really difficult to change and sometimes, too, that there's um, just differences between two partners that can't be reconciled. And so the emphasis on acceptance is really important and sort of a central feature of the treatment. So the idea of acceptance is that um, rather than um, just pushing for change, we learn to understand and um, tolerate the differences between us and our partners from a place that recognizes that um, there, the differences can be a part of a larger picture and that there can be silver linings to those differences and that pushing for change may actually create new problems as opposed to learning to kind of soften our response to those differences. Um, and so I, I don't know if at this point it would be helpful to talk more about the ins and outs of IBCT or if yeah, we should. Yeah, what does it look like yeah. in terms of in the, in the therapy room? Yeah, so... Often I start with um, a very intensive evaluation and, and what is important to sort of learn about the couple is, you know, what are, what's the nature of the kinds of things that are creating problems? Like we talked about in the beginning, you know, there's such a range of things that brings couples into the therapy room, right? There can be minor transgressions that build up over time um, with this idea that, you know, it's sort of the little things and eventually there's a straw that breaks the, breaks the camel's back. Or there can be much larger transgressions like affairs or substance use. And I know that we'll talk about some of those things later. So um, doing a thorough assessment of, of sort of what it is that the couple is struggling with, um, learning what... Um, their uh, differences or incompatibilities are. This is a common thing that brings couples in. So frustration over, um, you know, one couple being, uh, one partner really wanting to express love through sexual intimacy, whereas the other partner wants to express love through verbal affirmation. Um, I also look for things like emotional sensitivities, and often those emotional sensitivities can be built up over the history of mm -hmm. the life of the couple. So, um, for example, a lot of um, partners do receive like a lot of injuries during the years where they have young children and they're so busy and so occupied with just getting through life that they don't have a chance to heal some of the injuries that happen. And so those injuries end up becoming real emotional sensitivities that can be set off really easily. Yeah. So for example, so one partner, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say in therapy, I often call those raw spots in terms of when some, when one partner is reacting in this really huge way, it's like a, like an emotional burn on their skin and the other partners, I don't understand why they're so upset with this. Oftentimes if we trace back in time, we can see that there was something early on that happened or a repetitive theme that's happening that's contributing to that injury so that down the road, this person is kind of blowing up or feeling really hurt by a really minor, what appears to be a minor situation. Yeah. Yeah. So it ends up being like a hair trigger. Yeah. These things that don't necessarily from the outset look like such big deals, but from the inside just kind of set off this explosion. Mm -hmm. And it can, as you said, be so surprising to the other partner. Like, I don't understand why they're 
so reactive to this thing that doesn't seem like such a big deal. And so, as you just said, you know, exploring that and really understanding that can be really helpful from from the therapist's perspective. And then also, um, we'll talk about this too, but from the partner's perspective, deepening their understanding can be really healing as well. Mm-hmm. Um, then we, it's also really important to look at external circumstances and stressors. Um, these are things like, you know, financial limitations or lack of social support or career stress. And those are things that can really leak into a marriage. So it's important to kind of understand the impact that those types of circumstances have on the marital functioning. And then finally, to do a real thorough evaluation of patterns of problematic interactions. So different ways that the couple gets into a dynamic that tends to repeat itself in this sort of predictable way. Mm -hmm. So there are certain arguments that couples will find themselves having over and over again, and they can't figure out how to exit that loop. They keep finding themselves in that loop. So understanding sort of what that loop looks like, what is that dance that they're doing, and then deepening the understanding of why it is that they're doing it. So that's really what I look for in the assessment. And that's why I think that being a couples therapist is one of the most difficult uh, types of therapy to practice. And I really admire couples therapists because you, you know, you are managing, okay, what are the individual sensitivities of each partner? What is their dynamic between the two of them? And what are these raw spots? How are the patterns getting activated in the session and outside of the session? And then there's also, I think, something that I see more and more, which is my own internal reaction. And and how is that getting activated as well as the therapist? So navigating and creating a formulation of the couple um, on the fly is really challenging, I think, as a couple therapist. And can you talk, can you talk a little bit about who tends to um, do well in couples therapy versus what would be a, a you know people that would not do or don't end up doing as well in terms of the research around that? Yeah, so um you know there's some research looking at different kinds of couples therapy. So there there's actually there's uh the most research has been done on a treatment called traditional behavioral couples therapy and that was sort of the foundation for developing integrative behavioral couples therapy because what they found in the research on traditional forms of behavioral couples therapy is that people who were older, people who had difficulty, couples who had difficulty with collaboration, accommodating one another, compromising with one another, and couples who were less emotionally engaged, who were less sexually active, and who were more likely to withdraw during conflict, those were the couples that did less well in the traditional behavioral couples therapy approaches. And so that sort of provided some incentive to add in something more to the treatment package that would help those couples to move past some of the sticking points um, where they weren't getting helped with the traditional behavioral couples therapy. And so that's kind of where you see the acceptance piece getting integrated um, into uh, the couples therapy formulation. And that's a theme that we're seeing across the whole field of psychology where behavioral therapy has been shown to be so effective initially in, in a lot of ways. So for for example, if someone is struggling with an eating disorder, one of the behavioral approaches would be start by tracking your food or tracking your urges. But adding in an acceptance component is really what can uh, enhance some of the sticking points when behavioral therapy doesn't quite be as effective. So it's hard to practice some of the behavioral strategies in couples therapy like 
uh, reflective listening when internally you're feeling super dysregulated. And so I could see how acceptance would be important in order to help with especially highly distressed couples um, manage when change isn't always the most effective. Yeah. Yeah. I think that a lot of the highly distressed couples that I see and who have um, engaged in this kind of research um, really do get caught up in um, in their cycle. And so if you sort of give them some tips over like, do this differently, you know, try to communicate differently, try to offer up a caring behavior, they, they might do it once and then they'll receive a response from their partner that is frustrating. And then that kind of sets off the old pattern. And what I often tell couples is that it's, it's hard to change any kind of behavior that you've practiced for a long time because that behavior becomes habit, right? We, we, our thinking becomes habitual, our behaviors become habitual in relationships. And so and it's at least doubly hard to make changes to behaviors in relationships because there's two people that are setting off a reflexive reaction. So if I change, but my partner does the same thing, then I'm going to say, why am I working so hard? I'm just going to go back and do the thing that's easier. And I might not even consciously say that. I'm, I may just reflexively respond because that's how I'm used to responding because I may feel that they're attacking me. And so I, I need to defend myself. And so you see couples really falling back into old habits very easily. And the acceptance piece really is useful because it allows people to focus less on the other person and to um, refocus more on themselves and to open up a little bit more to imperfect behaviors, both from themselves and from their partner. And then also, I think most importantly, to develop compassion, both for themselves and for their partner, not only in how hard this is, but in um, understanding why it's so hard. One of the, my favorite homework assignments to give clients or, or couples when they come in, when, when they leave at the end of their session is I say, this week, what I want you to do is focus on what is it that you're going to accept in your partner and what is it that you're going to change in yourself? <laughs> because oftentimes people come into therapy with a long list of what they would like their partner to do differently. And if we shift the attention to what is it that I'm working on changing in myself and what am I accepting in my partner, then if we're in the tug of war, you know, that we are often in in our relationship, it means that we're both dropping the rope at the same time. And it doesn't work if one person drops the rope before the other person in, in that tug of war. So how we can both drop the rope at the same time is practicing acceptance of each other and then also trusting that the other person is going to keep on doing some work to to change themselves and ultimately that's the only way that 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 change can happen yeah I love that analogy of dropping the rope at the same time because um, it is one of those things where you know you do have to kind of lean into your partner to do this kind of work but the reality is it's really hard for people to do because it's scary. I mean, oftentimes people come in and they're they're really hurting. And so this idea of leaning into your partner when you're hurting, when you feel when you feel that you've been hurt by your partner can really be terrifying for people, right? It makes them feel quite vulnerable, um, you know, particularly in the cases um, where there's been like a recent trauma, like the discovery or disclosure of an affair. Um, that can be a really difficult time for people to to drop the rope at the same time. And yet it is so critical because otherwise, you know, one, if one person drops the rope, the other goes flying or they just end up, you know, at a standstill at an impasse with one another. 
Yeah, so let's talk a bit more about um, affairs. And I was really kind of sort of shocked to find the, the rates of um, affairs in um, what's been reported as heterosexual married couples. And what, you know, some of the statistics are is that about 50%, um, sorry, 90% of individuals will be married by the age of 49. And 20 to 40% of heterosexual married men and 20 to 25% of heterosexual married women will have an extramarital affair in their lifetime. And rates of infidelity occur, occur across cultures. Um, and there's different types of infidelity. So there's sexual infidelity, which is having a sexual relationship without having um, an emotional connection. There's romantic infidelity, which is a romantic emotional relationship without sexual connection. And then there's also the combination of sexual with romantic. There's also this interesting uh, sort of topic, which is mate poaching. And that's sort of the idea that another one of the partners tries to woo woo somebody else's um, mate and in some research reported by Helen Fisher there are about 60% of men and 53% of women admitted to mate poaching so maybe we can just talk a little bit about infidelity and when that shows up uh, in a relationship how how do you even begin to approach this topic between couples yeah, that's um, so I see a lot of um, people that come in with uh, um, who have just discovered that their partner has had an affair and it is one of the most traumatic things that can happen in a relationship because it really does kind of change the, the belief system of what the relationship is for the partner who has just discovered the affair. They um, didn't, you know, understand their partner to be somebody who might have been capable of doing that. It kind of changes, you know, the, the sort of informal as well as the formal, um, formal contract that they've made with their partner in their marriage. And so, you know, there's often a lot initially of effort to just restore equilibrium with the idea that, you know, in the very beginning stages of therapy, the work is really to just help, uh, stabilize things. You know, what are they going to do in the immediate future? How are they going to stay in the same house? Will the extramarital affair be cut off? How will they handle um, the child care if there are children? And um, once, and how will they take care of themselves? And then once there's enough of a sense of equilibrium, then there's a sense of, you know, can they come back in and, and try to do some of the work of figuring out what happened to cause the affair and then how will they recover from the affair. So there's really, I, I do kind of more than other kinds of therapy, separate out the work that I do with couples who have, um, who are working with an affair into stages. So there's kind of the restoring equilibrium and then there's the understanding, the predisposing characteristics that set up, set the relationship up for an affair. And then there's sort of the healing and then um, recovery phase as well. Um, but doing the affair work is really, uh, I, I use the IBCT model of understanding, you know, what happened in incompatibilities and what were the problematic kinds of interactions? Um, you know, what are the individual factors that might have led the partner who had the affair to make that kind of a decision? What are the relationship factors that might have also contributed? And then in terms of the non-affair partner to also understand what 
role they may have had. And of course, it's really important to say that the person who had the affair is entirely responsible for their behavior, but it's also often the case that even the non-affair partner can recognize that they might have had some role, some piece of a role in setting the relationship up to be at risk for having an affair. So for example, one, one common presentation that couples come in with is that one partner is more likely to express their love for the other partner using sexual intimacy, whereas the other partner may have a different way of giving or receiving love. And that can be a common uh, predisposing vulnerability for an affair when there is that kind of an incompatibility. And that sounds a lot like the love languages that um, I've heard about or people come in and talk about. Yeah, absolutely. There's this great um, book by Gary Chapman called The Five Love Languages, and he talks a lot about how it's very common for partners to have different ways of pre uh, sort of de preferentially giving and receiving love. And certainly giving and receiving love through sexual intimacy is, is one of those. And, you know, there are other common ones, including, you know, through verbal affirmation or through gift giving or through quality time spent together. And when you see those kind of differences, it can leave both partners feeling frustrated um, and it can really set a, the relationship up to uh, develop some cracks um, that are potentially the foundation for having an affair if they're not dealt with appropriately. I, I just want to say that it's actually more common than not for couples to have differences in their love languages so that the differences themselves are not the problem. The problem is more what we do with those differences. And that's really what IBCT talks a lot about is taking those differences and using them to your advantage um, as opposed to letting those differences create rifts in the relationship. But when it comes to affairs, um, it is it is common to have different love languages um, as as one feature of what might have um, set the relationship up to have the affair. And I can put a link to a little self test of, of the five love languages on our um, website because I think it's really actually interesting and fun for couples to fill out the questionnaire and figure out what their love language is and um, look at those differences. And then maybe you can also tailor the way that you approach your partner based on that. Like, for example, I know for myself, I'm a big gift giver. If you are my friend or a family member, <laughs> you know this about me. I love giving gifts. But what's interesting is that for me, receiving love, I actually receive much more love through appreciation. So it's an interesting uh, getting a little bit more specific around what is it that your partner um, really gets filled up by and how, how you can tailor um, or, or you know change, again, what can you change in yourself, change some of your behavior so that that, that part of them gets filled. Yeah, absolutely. And so when you're doing this kind of an exploration with a couple who's recovering from an affair, who's, you know, perhaps not even yet recovering, but just trying to understand, you know, what, what might have set them up to be at risk for an affair, it is really useful and, and sort of clarifying to develop that understanding, both of them, each partner developing an understanding of themselves and of their partner. And it's sometimes really surprising for the couples who come in after an affair to realize, oh, it wasn't just that my partner wanted sex, that was him or her showing me love and affection. Mm -hmm. And I really took it as, you know, you just want me to 
you know, gratify you as opposed to, you know, you're expressing your love for me. And so I think um, that quiz is really a, a really lovely thing. I agree to fill out and I'll give that sometimes to the couples that I see as an, a, a homework assignment as well, because I do think it can be really clarifying in terms of deepening one's understanding of oneself and one's partner. I also really like some of the work by Esther Perel, who's a Belgian psychotherapist, and she's written quite a bit on sexuality and committed relationships. She has the book out, um, Mating in Captivity, which I found really um, a really good read and one that I recommended to some clients. And then a new book out that I've yet to read called A State of Affairs. I think it just came out you know, very recently. And yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. So what I like about her uh, understanding of affairs is that she talks a lot about sort of this um, balance between in a committed relationship, there's a lot of predictability and safety and efforts to really um, feel comfort and, and sometimes even closeness. But what can get lost over time is in a committed relationship is more of the adventure and freedom. And sometimes affairs are a result of not having enough space for one of the members to or both members to um, experience that adventurous freedom or even just the parts that she talks about that oftentimes in an affair, the member that's having um, the affair is going out to seek out a part of themselves that they felt like feel like that they've lost in the relationship, and that actually gives um, sort of a context with within you could even talk less specifically about the details of what happened in the affair and more about what were you looking for uh, in the affair that maybe is a part of yourself that we need to also um, nurture and, and and grow within this relationship. Yeah, absolutely. And one other interesting piece of about this idea of closeness and intimacy is that it's often the case that that's an area of difference for partners as well, that one person may crave a lot of closeness and intimacy, whereas the other partner is more comfortable with a bit more independence. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that mismatch can be a little bit of a setup too for frustration or, or even, um, you know, can be a part of what may cause the affair um, you know, at least one small piece of it. Um, because if one partner is really inclined towards having a lot of closeness and intimacy, um, they may sort of create a situation where the other partner feels a little bit suffocated and may be looking for something else to kind of, um, for some excitement or for some air in some other, you know, way. And that may be, uh, if, if they're not talking about that difference in a way that allows them to sort of deal with that as an issue together, then that can be a setup for some kind of a betrayal. And so I think this idea of, you know, too much closeness and intimacy is is real, but it really does vary from person to person exactly how much closeness and intimacy is too much versus what amount is the right amount. And again, that may be something that each couple has to sort out uh, the balance for their unit because even within their unit, there may be differences in what is ideal for each of them. And so they have to kind of find something that feels like an equilibrium for, for them together. Mm -hmm. I also think that there's a decrease in um, maybe bidding for each partner over time. So sometimes that shows up in the therapy room when I'm working with couples where there's been an affair where in the beginning of the relationship, you can really identify, one of the first questions I ask couples when they come in is what 
what was it that attracted you to your partner? How did you meet? And and then in the beginning, that 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 aspect of their partner is really fun and exciting, and there's a bid for more of that. There's a bit of a mystery. So say a couple met um, at a party and one member of the couple was playing guitar. So there was a mysterious element to that, <laughs> that member that over time gets lost in the in just the dynamics of the relationship, and there's less bidding for affection, there's less um, appreciation of those aspects of their partner. And so reorienting or helping people reorient to those reasons why they got connected in the first place and how to reinforce that in each other or even notice it in each other throughout the day. Because that's also part of the, you know, I think in couples, couples there's either too much distance between them or sometimes there's not enough. And finding that balance um, so that your your partner still has a sense of mystery or there's an aspect of the individual in the relationship independent of the relationship itself. Yeah, and I think that's definitely what Esther Perel gets at in a lot of her work is that um, the, we do kind of default and, and habituate to our relationships and just get really, really comfortable. And what was exciting in the beginning that we sort of sought after is now now belongs to us. And so we don't have to work as hard. We don't have to make those bids, as you just said, um, to get more of the thing that seemed so interesting and enticing to us. We, we already have it and, and now it's familiar and we may love it, but the tension that comes with wanting something um, really goes out the window when we just have it and it becomes safe and comfortable and just available to us anytime we want it. And so you know, then it becomes this really interesting question of how do you build in some of that tension, some of that desire when you're with somebody in a relationship that is stable and committed? And I think that it's not hopeless, not not anywhere close to hopeless. I think that the answer is really it, it requires some effort. It requires some effort to stay interesting. It requires some effort to insert some intrigue or some um, mystery into the relationship. And that one of the problems with uh, long-term relationships is that we often expect them to operate on autopilot. There's this myth that if you found the right person, it should just kind of work. Mm -hmm. And for most healthy relationships, that isn't quite true. We, we need to put in effort and energy, you know, just like if we have a beautiful plant, we need to make sure we water it and prune it and monitor it. it, it all things that, you know, are alive require some care and nourishing. And I think that's really hard for new parents and working parents or people that are really involved in their careers, right? Because I think if for women in particular, what gets lost first is their relationships with themselves. And then the relationship with their partner and that, you know, and it kind of is this, how do you have enough space and time to cultivate all these gardens, right? Because there's a lot of gardens that you're trying to um, water at the same time. And so that that's where, when you were talking about in the beginning about compassion for uh, your clients, I've really noticed that, you know, I, as I've had my own struggles in my own life experience, I have a lot more compassion for couples that come in and just the, the common humanity of how do we do this? You know, how do we, this is why divorce rates are so high. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a challenging thing to keep on putting energy into our relationships, but it's also, we expect a lot from them. And so they, you know, we, we do need to put, put some of the energy in so that we can have them last a long time. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
That kind of reminds me of what I emailed you about just this week, which is, uh, do you have any helpful ideas for how I can do a little bit of self-care while I have a young baby in my life? And it is, it's just so challenging to find the time and we do need to nourish ourselves to be able to have enough to give to our relationships. And the other thing that, um, got brought into my mind by what you said is that, you know, we live in an age where we really do just expect a lot from our relationships, you know, whereas centuries ago, marriages were really built for um, economic um, safety and um, familial ties to be in place. We now really expect marriages to fulfill us sexually, personally, professionally, familially, right? We're living further and further away from our families. We don't have as much um, religious community involvement as we used to sort of as a society. And we expect marriages to really offer a lot of that. And yet it's really hard for most people, as you said, because of our kids and our careers and life is so busy and so taxing to be able to put in enough to get out what we expect. And so just remembering that we expect a lot from our marriages, um, but that in order for them to deliver, that we do need to find ways to prioritize them. And, And still to remember, too, that in order to put in what our marriages need, we first need to make sure that we're healthy as individuals. Mm -hmm. So I have a a question related to the infidelity um, part, which is, you know, one, is there an expectation that if, you know, as a divorce, as a marital therapist, that your outcome is for um, not a divorce, not to happen to avoid or prevent divorce. And then two, can people recover um, from infidelity? What does it look like on the other side? Because um, I think that that's often, you know, when people are coming in, one of their questions is, are we going to be able to get through this? Yeah, so I'll answer the second part first, which is that people absolutely can recover from infidelity. There's research supporting that, and I've certainly seen it clinically in in my therapy office as well. And what's sort of um, surprising is that it's, sometimes the case that affairs offer this wonderful opportunity to return to the marital foundation, right? The the marriage kind of fractures in this major, very painful way. And it gives couples an opportunity to say, oh, there was really something wrong going on for a long time. I mean, and to that end, there's research showing that couples on average wait six years from the time that they identify that there's a significant problem in their relationship to actually attend couples therapy. And that's a really long time to be living with something that is causing you a lot of pain and and to feel unable to do anything effective about it. And so by the time an affair is disclosed, it's often the case that problems have been in the relationship for a long time and the affair kind of exposes them, right? There's sort of nothing more to hold back. And and so couples are often at this place where they can really dive deep into exploring what had gone wrong in the relationship, however long ago it started, and, and to really sort of being and if they're in a position to really explore and do some self-reflecting as well as reflecting on the relationship at large, it can really be a powerful turning point. Um, And then the second question that you had about what good outcomes of couples therapy um, is is a really interesting research and clinical question. And um, it is certainly true that 
um, we want to see marriages succeed. Marriage is uh, associated with all sorts of good mental health and health outcomes, but that's a statistical finding. And, and there's certainly lots of marriages and people that do better once they exit the marriage. When when there's high conflict, certainly when there's abuse, um, those are definitely marriages that you need to really reflect very deeply on whether staying together is a good outcome or not. Um, and I often find that couples will come into therapy, you know, many years after the problem has started. And, and one of the things that they'll be exploring is what what will be a good outcome for us. And so that is actually one of the goals of therapy is to sort of really deeply reflect on that question. And so it's sort of, um, you're also pointing to with, by saying that it takes six years for people to come into therapy after they've been you know, established a problem, sort of the seven year itch has some truth to it. Um, but this, yeah. uh, this idea that um, problems build up over time, and and by the time they come into the therapy room, it just feels like this is huge. Versus being able to address communication along the way and tend to the problems, you know, early on. And thinking about, you know, I, I really encourage people to think about therapy um, as a preventative wellness tool. And I think that in general, I'm a big believer, whether it's with your physical health, as well as your mental health, being able to tend to and take care of yourself before it becomes um, irreversible. And that's where I think therapy can also be really beneficial. I'm always excited when new couples, you know, recent couples in there, you know, maybe not yet married or really in the relationship come into therapy because I feel like it's such a good prognostic factor that they're um, wanting to work on things early on as opposed to waiting until these really entrenched patterns develop. Yeah, absolutely. There's actually a good amount of research supporting the utility of premarital counseling for the long, healthy life of a marriage. And so I definitely encourage listeners to um, consider premarital counseling if they're at that stage in the game. And what's also nice is that there's um, self-help books um, uh, that uh, are really wonderful to read, but also that clergy are often well-versed in premarital counseling. So that's another way that you can access some of that training. And often premarital counseling, as you said, does review skills like communication training and, um, you know, helping couples clarify values and prepare for things that they could foresee as being, you know, risky times or risky dynamics for them and then planning around them so that they don't get stuck in, you know, the trenches of something that could otherwise be avoided. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Al. I'm wondering if there's any sort of closing resources that you want to make sure you mention um, for the listeners, if there's any particular books or resources to point people to that may be interested in learning more about um, either couples therapy, if they're a therapist, or how to enhance their relationship if they're working on their own relationship issues. Yeah, so the IBCT books are are wonderful. So the self help book that I recommend to couples is called Reconcilable Differences, um, and the authors are uh, Christensen, Jacobson, and Doss. And there's um, a companion uh, book 
to that for therapists that are interested in learning the treatment um, by the same authors. And another book that I also love that isn't strictly IBCT, but is, um, is it has a lot of the very similar um, types of strategies is called Act With Love by Russ Harris. Mm-hmm. And that one's very, very readable for couples that aren't reconcilable differences tends to have be a little bit more um, detailed and a, uh, it's more, for people that are a little bit more interested in like the science of, of therapy and marriage. Um, but Act With Love is a little bit more accessible if you're less into that kind of book. Um, and then there's also um, the premarital um, researchers that have done a lot of work in this area have a lot of books on on marriage as well that teach a lot of the um, communication skills and things like that um, called Fighting for Your Marriage. And I think they have ones that are like Fighting for Your Christian Marriage, Fighting for Your Jewish Marriage, um, that you can sort of, uh, in a way, tailor the lessons to whatever kind of marriage you're trying to build. Great. Thank you so much for those. And if you're interested in working with Yael or learning more about her, you can find her on her website, which is yaelshanbrun.com, Y-A-E-L-S-C-H-O-N-B-R-U-N.com. And um, again, it was just really good to talk with you. And I um, hope to continue our conversations in, in more episodes in the future. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Okay. Take care. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes. You can also find us at www.offtheclockpsych.com. That's offtheclockpsych.com. Music by John Goo and Susie Stevens.